Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bunker Books podcast. My name's Nick Cohen, uh, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Sebastian Payne, who is Whitehall editor of the Financial Times, had the sheer bloody nerve to be my editor when he edited the Spectator blogs, and is the author of Broken Heartlands, A Journey Through Labour's Lost England. Welcome. Hi, Nick. It's great to be here. Well, I'm very glad you're here because this is this is a terrific book, a book that is in its structure, I found fascinating because it is, it's journalism. You go through what's called the Red Wall Seats on a journey and interview everyone you can. But it's got an immense narrative power because you're trying to explain how the Labour Party collapsed in its heartlands. I think this all began, Nick, because in 2014, I did a fellowship at the Washington Post and I lived in D.C. for a period. And one of the things that really struck me about American journalism, American political journalism versus U.K. political journalism, is the fact that they go everywhere. Yeah. That you would begin your week at the Washington Post, have a Monday morning meeting about what are we going to cover this week? Right, immigration, that's the big topic. We're going to send X to Y, whatever. And you all went out and spent a good couple of days, uh, you know, Mexico or wherever yeah. it is, and then write these great pieces of deeply reported stuff. And when I came back to the UK at the beginning of 2015, when I was at The Spectator, I was like, why does no one do this here with Mm. the great exception of John Harris, the Guardian, who is brilliant at this? Fantastic. And in 2015, that was when I bought a very old Mini. This was when I stood at The Spectator and drove it round. And that was when I wrote and reported a lot about UKIP and the rise of Euroscepticism in Kent and Essex. And obviously, they didn't break through in that election, but they did a lot better than people expected in many ways, set the narrative Mm. for what came later. You're from Darlington. Sorry, Gateshead, forgive me. God, what terrible error. You can get lynched in Gateshead for saying you that. You certainly would. Um, uh, uh, you're, you're from Gateshead and you start out there and Labour have, first of all, lost their Scottish heartlands and never seem to be coming back. They keep changing leader, left, right, man, woman, telegenic, sombre, exuberant, doesn't matter. And you start there after they've lost... A shed load of seats that and I'm, you're very precise in the book. Mm. You're not talking about northern marginals because people in the south don't even understand that there are rich parts in the north and solid conservative seats. You're talking about seats that have been Labour for as long as anyone can remember and always seem to be Labour mm. and have just gone. Yeah. And I think this is the key thing, Nick, because like, take Darlington, which you just mentioned. That's a marginal seat. It was conservative yeah. from 83 to 92. Uh, and then obviously it's now gone back again. There's a key difference between that and the Red Wall. And the thing about the Red Wall is many of them have never had a conservative MP ever. So Grimsby is one example of that. Burnley is another. But then there's others that have had them in sometimes in recent memory, sometimes in the 1950s when Howard Macmillan was prime minister. But the other key traits they have is one, a very strong Brexit vote, so well above the 52% of the national average. And the second thing they have is they've always had a base of Conservative voters, you know, a couple of thousand, but it's mm. never really been in place. So you take North West Durham, for example. Even as recently as 97, Labour had a 25,000 majority there. Yeah. And then now you've got a thousand Conservative majorities. So the change and collapse has been, you know, to quote Hemingway, it's gradual, then sudden. That's what you've seen in the Red Wall. I'm going to generalise now, which is a shame because one thing I really loved about this book is in each constituency you go to, you get a real sense of place. I've never been to Northwest Durham. And I got a feeling for what it's like and a feeling for the people. And th- those are distinct in each chapter as you go from you know, Durham to Grimsby and, and you know, uh, to Wigan and wherever and Burnley. Let's generalise. Overwhelmingly, what you are seeing 
what you're talking about is white working class voters giving up on the Labour Party mm-hmm. and the new north in the housing estates. And people who have got pretty good jobs, not, not huge amounts of money, but you don't need huge amounts of money to buy a house in large parts of northern England. It's not completely screwed like, like London and the South East. All turning to the Conservatives. Is Brexit absolutely central to that or would it have happened anyway? The thing we often forget about Brexit is that it was a lot of prosperous middle class people who gave Quite. us Brexit. It's not just the council estate and the people yeah. of the It's the Daily Telegraph readers of yeah. Surrey and Sussex as much as, you know, the council estate of Hayward and Middleton. The thing that Brexit did, Nick, was it broke the umbilical cord between these places. The bonds had been weakening over decades. And the narrative, I guess, through Broken Heartlands is that when deindustrialization really started to get going in the early 1980s, it broke what I've called collectivised communities. So places where you worked for one big employer, the employer was everything. It dominated the Mm. town. Everybody somehow was connected to that. And it was heavily unionised. You therefore automatically voted for Labour. When that starts to pick up pace with obviously the mines, with steelworks, with heavy manufacturing, these places went through a terrific amount of pain, you know, huge levels of unemployment and deprivation. But they've now come through the other side of that and their economic bases are more diverse, small manufacturing, service-based, public sector in some respects. And yes, they are more prosperous and that's what Labour hasn't come to terms with. Now, I do think Tony Blair did come to terms with this. And when supporters of Jeremy Corbyn say, oh, new Labour never challenged the Thatcherite settlement – That's because Blair knew exactly what he was doing. He knew those places were changing. He could see in Sedgefield his own constituency, which was once full of mines, yet the last mine had closed. And you now pretty much say is, is, is not even marginal. No, I think Sedgefield is a kind of place, it's new. It's the new bellwether, really, to use that dreadful mm. term, that Boris Johnson doesn't stay in power without keeping Sedgefield and Keir Starmer can't win power without getting it back okay. again. You talk to people like Mary Cray in, in Wakefield, Phil Wilson, the former Labour MP in Sedgefield. You could have talk, spoken to, uh, I guess you can't go everywhere, but Anna Turley in Redcar. There are all these Labour MPs in Yorkshire and the North East who said, yeah, 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 Seb, we absolutely agree with you. Our future is light manufacturing, new industries. And the reason we are going to absolutely fight Brexit is... Brexit will be a disaster for our constituencies, for our areas, for for those industries. Why do arguments like that not cut through? Why you, it is an awful scene in the book when you're talking to I think it's Melanie on from Grimsby, and um, Melanie who's virtually needs police protection to canvas in Grimsby after saying, "Look, we can't have this hard Brexit. It's going to be a disaster." Why do those arguments not cut through? I think, first of all, the the biggest problem the Remain case has had since 2016 is there's never been a big single event you could pin to Brexit. When you look at the media narrative of all the things that have happened, it's been little bits around the edges and it's still the case now. Mm -hmm. And obviously, Boris Johnson's government is very buttressed by COVID because it masks a lot of the effects of Brexit. So that's the first thing. So when you're Phil Wilson, um, who I've spent a lot of time with while researching the book in Sedgefield, he's one of the most thoughtful politicians I've ever met. You know, he said that he tried to make this case, but he said people don't see it, they don't feel it, and they don't believe you. So that's the first reason it just doesn't connect. And second of all, 
people in politics don't like to be told they're wrong. It's one of the reasons you very rarely get one-term presidents in America, that people vote for something and they don't want to say, actually, you know what, I got that badly wrong. And I yeah. think, you know, if you look at the Trump situation with Joe Biden, I think COVID was so overwhelmingly badly wrong. But if it wasn't for COVID, Trump probably would have won again. Yeah. And I think the thing with Brexit was... People felt they wanted this for whatever reasons, whether it was immigration, whether it was a call for change, whether it was because they just didn't feel a connection to the European ideal. When somebody came along and said, I don't agree with that, I think you're wrong, people just did not want yeah. to hear it. And I think that goes back a and long there's, way. There's, it goes back there's decades. Also, there's also just democracy. You know, you had to vote, you lost. And, and, and I, I always think, although I think Brexit has been a monumental national mistake, if people's vote people had won and there'd been a second referendum, uh, they would have lost by a far bigger margin because people who voted Remain would say, hold on a second, we had this. You know, we had this vote and now you're trying to fix it. Well, I'll say on that, Nick, I I think it's a very interesting question about what I would have done in that second referendum situation because as I've written about in the book, you know, I was very, very torn about how to vote and and I spent 20 minutes in the polling booth on Brexit referendum day and I'd written a column for the FT arguing why as a kind of moderate Eurosceptic and sort of centre-right, person of centre-right persuasions, but I voted for Remain and I don't regret that at all since that and I think everything that's happened has buttressed the reasons that I did vote for Remain. But in a second referendum situation, I really don't know. I think I would have been very, very torn. It would have depended a lot of where things are because... And going back to the book, one interview I think was really interesting on this is Mary Cray, who you mentioned, MP for Wakefield. Now, she grew up where we're sitting now in Highbury and she was head of Islington Council Mm. and, you know, is as European as they come, worked in Brussels, loved the project, all the rest of it. She was put in to Wakefield um, as an MP along with that whole cadre of new Labour people and she talks about when they used to all get the train. You know, it was Ed Bores, it was Yvette Cooper and they would all get the train from King's Cross every Thursday and go up to their northern constituencies and be based in London, a key part of the new Labour project. Mary Cray was so passionate, she could not find it within herself. And when I interviewed her, the emotion in her voice was so moving because she felt as you do, about Brexit. This thing was so bad. But she was getting so much abuse from her constituency. And I think ultimately you just get to a point where I think it was you couldn't you couldn't tally these two things together. One reason why the Tories may stay in power for a very long time, is politics is positional and position of the Labour Party, which runs through this book. It gave this book a huge coherence. Now, perhaps this is me being Islington, Metropolitan, Liberal Elite, Romaniac, bastard. One thing you don't go into that much is simply age. Is it the case, because people say, well, the North or Labour heartland seats were revolted, but aren't we really talking about a society now where only 13% of people over 65 even vote Labour? In other words, are we mistaking differences in age for differences in class and differences in geography? I mean, the Conservative Party has become the party of the old. Or do you think that there is a northern, now a northern conservative sensibility that extends across the generations? Well, you'll be surprised that I'm going to say it's probably more of the latter than the former. Yeah. But I think if you look at the Conservative average voting age, it actually dropped in 17 to 19 between those two elections because it did increase quite substantially. And I think the crossover in po- point in 2017 was 47. And when you become much more likely to become a Tory voter and in 2019, it dropped to 45. Right. Um, 
obviously, a lot of these places are, as you said, white working class. They have got aging populations, as the whole country's population is aging too. The problem about the demographics argument is I can remember reading Guardian columns of people saying by 2020, there's going to be an inbuilt majority for Labour forevermore because of demographics. There is nothing inevitable no, no. about demographics no, no. in this country. There, I'm sorry I've forgotten his name, but there's a, a professor of American history, American guy at Cambridge, who says, old guy now, he says, Oh, I remember 1968, and we all thought the future is all going to be us. It's all going to be liberal values and freedom and blah, 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 blah. I've spent the rest of my bloody life fighting the American right, and they've always won. <laughs> exactly. And I think the thing about the thing, the most interesting demographic question I examine this in the book is what's going to happen uh, to the non white vote in the UK? Let's get to that because I always rate a book is, is moments where you just sit up and think, Woo, that's good. As you've said, you've already spoken about working class communities hit by deindustrialization in the 80s, massive decline, massive unemployment, pulling themselves together, and that has really hurt Labour. But you make a fascinating point about the ethnic minority vote, which has been solid for Labour mm. on the whole, and communal allegiance to Labour going there for sort of the same reasons. Can you explain it? Yes. Yeah, so in the last election, 64% of the non-white vote in the UK voted Labour. So it's still overwhelmingly in that way. Now, the Tories had a massive rise in 2015 of the non-white vote and it yeah. helped them win seats like Battersea in London, for example, as well as other factors. That dropped in 2017 and it's now about 17% and it was the same in 2019. But I went to Coventry Northwest to see the Tories almost won by mm. 800 votes, but didn't quite get there to look at what's going on there. And what I found is the same collapse in societal structures that you see in the white working class vote is happening amongst the BME community. So those first generations that came to the UK in the mid 20th century, they were again intrinsically tied to the labour movement because Mm. they were working in blue collar jobs. There was a very tight sense of community. And in many respects, they had community leaders who were their main interaction with the British state. So in terms of renting, taxes, and then of course, how to vote. I mean, this happens, it still happens, you know, there's different names when we talk about uh, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh communities, but you're a Labour politician, there's a few guys you can go to, you square it with them, and you are, you, first of all, you, you get the Labour nomination, and second, the vote turns out for you. And that is breaking down for the same reason because people aren't listening to community leaders. They're becoming more British, more individualistic and so on. Exactly. So you jump forward a couple of generations, one of the third and fourth generation now in places like Coventry Northwest. And you've got, first of all, they're richer again. You know, they're more likely to be solicitors, doctors, teachers, work in um, white collar jobs than the first generation of people who worked in the factories of Coventry. Second of all, they are more individualistic. They don't necessarily have those strong community and religious ties in the way that they Mm. once did. And the way that Sajid Javid, who was fascinating, he spoke to me when he was on the back benches um, for the book, is that he said, it's not that they're becoming conservative, it's that their their vote is up for grabs now. And that they can be one over and, so, and someone, a Tory minister says to you off the record, you don't name, name it, but the ethnic minority vote is the next two to drop for Labour. And you can see that. Across the Western world, progressive parties, for want of a better description, many people know what they mean, are increasingly now graduate liberal mm-hmm. in alliance with ethnic minorities. Is it possible, do you think, for the Labour Party to give voters in places like Grimsby, 
what they want. Well, there's one theory that basically the Labour Party is a construct of the 20th century and it was formed in a very particular set of circumstances, which was metropolitan socialist intellectuals combined with working classes who were starting to get engaged in voting in politics. And this is in the book, I've used the phrase, it's very well known, the Hampstead to Humberside yeah, Alliance. Also British. Labour is the only authentically British movement, if you like, because the Conservatives and Liberals, they can trace their ancestry back to the 1680s. They were English parties. Labour is British. And so one thing I think London commentators, myself included, are hopeless at saying the catastrophic loss of Scotland for Labour. Yes. In terms of seats, in terms of personnel, in terms of leadership. And identity, yes. And identity, a British identity. Labour is having to be an English party at the same time as... It's middle class is the wrong word. Graduate. The division yeah. between graduates and school leavers is huge everywhere in the Western world. Could it do what even Blair did and be tough on crime and get away with it with its supporters? Well, I'll come out of Scotland in a minute because that is obviously a very important part of this as well. Look, obviously, the example everybody cites in all this, of course, is Joe Biden. And after the Hartlepool by-election, some of my friends in DC dropped me emails and they said, if it wasn't for Joe Biden and the force of his personality, who he personally embodies that, you know, being from Scranton, Pennsylvania, and being able to authentically connect with those people, these people I respect in DC said to me, we would be in exactly the same position with losing these kind of places. They did in 2016 to Trump, you know, all those Rust Rust Belt states backing um, the Republicans, sometimes for the first time. It is an open question. If you look, you know, we're speaking just in the run up to the German elections here. The SPD are having this great revival in Germany, but that's also they're going to win in coalition with the FDP, the Lib Dems, if you like, Mm. of Germany and the Green Party. So it's a leftist block sort of, but it's not within one party. And of course, I do think that if the next election comes and Keir Starmer doesn't make much headway, which you'd have to think looking at the polls is the case. Labour needs to seriously think about does it want to do some kind of formal coalition with Liberal Democrats? Oh, I, I mean, I keep saying this. Uh, Naomi Smith, who's a great bunker podcaster, mm-hmm. produces huge papers on this saying it is absolutely essential for electoral pacts. So there's one anti-tour candidate. I'm just back from Hungary, which is a one-party state, a lot nastier than the British Tories. But, you know, all the opposition parties have just said the only way to get these people out is agree on one candidate in each constituency. Yeah. But it's anathema here. The Lib Dems, actually, the right of the Lib Dem party passed a motion at their conference just this week, which makes it harder. Well, also, also because what do you do about Scotland again? Right. The SNP is not an anti-Tory party. It's an anti-British party. Right. And this comes back to the identity point we were making earlier about where Labour came from and what it stands for. Because by doing that, first of all, you're acknowledging you're no longer a national party, which for Labour psychologically is a very difficult yeah. thing. And second of all, if you are doing that, you come back to the Scotland question. Now, I think Anna Sawa, who's the latest leader of Scottish Labour and a long stream of people they've tried and failed, he's certainly the most impressive they've got. I interviewed him over the summer yeah. And I think that he's very good. But the question is, how is he going to make headway within Scotland with a very, very different set of political forces there? And one thing that we do forget about Scotland as well, I just want to push back slightly on your point about the Tories just being English party, you know, they had they won 17 seats um, in, oh, in enough, 2017. Yeah. They still have 10 of those. They're still doing yeah. better in Scotland than they did throughout the whole David Cameron time that he was prime minister. Mm. And that's because, first of all, we forget 42% of Scotland voted leave and a third of the SNP vote 
voted for Brexit as well. So you've still got that part of the Scottish and vote And they, they are the union party. The SNP is the partition party. Where's Labour? Right. And that's the problem. And so there is a narrative when you look at all these factors that it does become existential for Labour because bridging that cultural divide, like on like so going back to your question about can they win both, right? You know, can you hold can you hold Hackney and can you hold Huddersfield? Economically, I think you can. There's an economic message about redistribution, about public services that probably works. Culturally, though, it's really difficult. And without going down into the wormhole of so-called wokeness and all those kind of issues... And I think if you look at the character of the new Tory MPs, like, so one example is Ian Levy, the first ever Tory MP for Blythe Valley. You know, he worked in the NHS for 35 years. That's the classic kind of person no, I, who I, would I, become I, I, a I, Labour MP. Yeah, no, I was, I was reading your book and I absolutely thought that. I thought, well, you know, 30 years ago, exactly, he would have been a Labour, Labour MP and a very good one. And now he's a Tory. What is Labour to him now? Why isn't he Labour, would you say? I think, first of all, if you live in these places, first of all, they've never had Tory MPs, but everything has been Labour all their lives. The council's been Labour, the council's been Labour, their government's been Labour. And the thing we forget as well is people of my generation, Nick, the millennial generation... I don't. I have very minimal memories of the John Major government. Yeah. My first big election memory was '97 and Tony Blair. I remember that very, very clearly. Mm. But all of our hinterland has been Labour in power. So if you look at your area and you think things are a bit rubbish, you know, in terms yeah. of you haven't got the jobs, you haven't got the infrastructure, who do you blame? You don't blame Thatcher because it's before I was born. You don't blame the Tories. You blame Labour. And I think for these people, they look at their areas and think all we've ever known is Labour for our whole lives. Labour MPs since my granddad was alive. Yeah. They want something different. And because the Tories have become more acceptable via Brexit, that's how okay. they got open to them. Now, Seb, two quick questions. Throughout this book, it's it's about towns. It's about semi-rural, on the whole, uh, Coventry accepted, Coventry and Burnley accepted, about towns. And you, you have a long interview with Lisa Nandy, queen of the towns, and all of that. And there's an argument which I think economically we, we haven't had in this country. People keep saying we shouldn't focus on cities. And and Lisa Nandy says, well, if you're in Wigan, you know, how does how Manchester booming doesn't help you. But here's a problem which I think Johnson is not even thinking about is actually British cities, the great British cities, supposedly Cardiff, Belfast, Glasgow, Newcastle, Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham. They are not by the international standards booming second cities. They're not like Chicago or Frankfurt or Lyon, Marseille or Milan. You know, and they're still really quite poor compared to the great whem of London. And unless you start building up the cities, I don't see how towns in Northumbria are going to thrive unless Newcastle really transforms or Pennine towns are going to thrive unless Leeds and Manchester boom. So I've changed my mind on this while I was writing the book because I always used to sort of, if you want to put it, Lisa Nandy on the town's camp and George Osborne, the former chancellor in the city's yeah. camp. I've definitely gone more towards the Osborne view of this because Lisa Nandy's of the view that towns are very important and she thinks with how COVID's transformed the economy, more people working yeah, yeah. from home, there's more of an economic purpose for towns that can be rebuilt there. The issue is, though, and I think Osborne and also people like Jim O'Neill, the former Goldman Sachs banker, and Howard Bernstein, the former chief executive of Manchester, they all make the very coherent argument, cities have to thrive and then towns do well. And the places, so it's the Wakefield to the Leeds, the Burnley to the Manchester, Mm. um, the Birkenhead to Liverpool, for a different example. I think we do need to have a much bigger focus on making cities better. And they're not really doing it. Right, final question. 
Final question before we go into our prolonged appeals for money, which literally take as long as the rest of the programme. Everyone says Labour's got to win Hampstead and Hull, right? Yeah. The Tories have to win Surrey and Sedgefield now. They have a massive coalition. Cheer our listeners up, Seb. Give them something for the pain of listening to this podcast. How can you see the Conservative Party getting into trouble because it's spanning so many different interests? I think it's going to be tough for the Tories' action, more tough than many of them realise. And um, Because, again, they've had all these seats forever since the Tory party, probably going back to when it was very much the English party of, you know, of, the, of, of middle history. The issue is, and I think it's economic and cultural, because the cultural stuff, a lot of these places are small C conservative. And, you know, the, the, the stance the Johnson government is taking on cultural issues, I can see that turning off people. The second thing is economic. That If you're an MP for Hertfordshire and you're seeing all this money getting poured in to these seats elsewhere and your taxes are going up to pay for it, you think, well, why am I voting for this? Mm. And I think the Liberal Democrats, if they were to turn themselves into the George Osborne party or the like the FDP for example yeah. there is a space and obviously the Lib Dems have that beardy weirdy tradition that, which is a very adorable but makes it difficult to appeal to those working professionals who work in the city but you can see an obvious place for them there so there is the intellectual gap and I think the Tories are going to have to manage that and I've always said Theresa May will leave Parliament when she's no longer the MP for Maidenhead and if you take Cheshire and Amersham now it's obviously it's a by-election yeah. a very particular set of circumstances but if you replicated even just a bit of that, there's a good 10 oh, to 20 oh, seats oh, I can, across I, the I can see I can see it happening places in the north. I, I'm from Altrincham and Sale, Graham Brady's constituency, South Manchester. That's a really interesting one now, to watch. Now, you know, when I was growing up there, it was so conservative. Yeah. I remember collecting for the miners' strike and people just astonished to even see someone collecting for striking miners, let alone, you know, the idea this was happening in Altrincham was on. Now, even with Corbyn as Labour leader, even with all the burdens you put Labour only 6,000 votes behind the Tories they can win places like that so here's a funny thing I thought reading your book was a part of the reason you know Labour's doing so badly is people becoming more middle class but we know when people become more middle class and crucially absolutely crucially go to university they tend to become more progressive mm. so that's going that's going to play out in the north as well although not not to the same extent I Thought. You would think so. And I think obviously the, the thing with those kind of changes are they take decades to yeah, cycle yeah. through into the political system. And this is where I think, you know, this is why I didn't focus so much on demographics in the book, because it takes such a long time for that to have a yeah. real impact. And, and that, who knows? Exactly. Who at that knows? Point. Yeah. But I do think the thing about where the Tories go in the South well is we still have the focus on two-party politics and I have no doubt the next election the Tories will say to those seats like Cheshire and Amersham if you think about voting Lib Dem Nicola Sturgeon's going to be in government with Keir yeah. Starmer we saw that in 2015 so that will probably work out quite well yeah. but I do think that is the next big story to watch in British okay, politics Okay so Sebastian Payne has offered lefty listeners to the bunker some clear but you may have to wait until the 2050s to see it now then, money. This is a small company. We try to bring you interesting and different stuff. We do need a bit of dosh. So if you could sign up to our Patreon page, that would be fantastic. If you've got no money, can you give us a good rating on whatever the thing is on your app? Nice review on Apple or Android, Spotify, whatever. If you like this podcast, could you send a link to five people so they could listen to it? If you hated it, could you send a link to five people you really dislike? 
I just need to thank Sebastian Payne, Broken Heartlands, published by... Pan Macmillan. In the shops now, is it? Absolutely. How much? Uh, £20, but I think cheaper if you look at your favourite online retailer. It's twice the price, it's still a bargain. Seb, thank you very much, and thank you everyone for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Nick Cohen. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Bunker.